When it comes to hunting boots, how many pairs does one man need? Well, how many seasons are there? Turkey season? Deer season? Duck season? Dove season? Honey, how many pairs of boots does one man need? At least one more pair. For just about everything for hunting, go to MidwayUSA.com. I'm Larry Potterfield with Midway USA. Thanks for your business. Hunting is not easy. It never has been. It takes dedication, motivation, a lot of patience, and quality gear. If you manage a food plot, put up stands, or need just one more game camera, we can help at MidwayUSA.com. We opened our doors in 1977 and continue to put customers first by offering super fast, same day shipping. For just about everything for the outdoors, go to MidwayUSA.com. Hey, I just got back from lunch. Did you finish that report yet? Uh, well, not exactly. I'm still working on it. I'm not finished just yet. Uh, I got a little sidetracked, but I will get them to you first thing this afternoon. <laughs> it is first thing this afternoon. Well, yeah, I, I understand that, but I mean, I, I am working on it. But I'll have, what um, do you mean that the report isn't finished yet? I'm still in the process of working on it. I've just been a little distracted. Just distracted? Our meeting starts in an hour. I, I, I can have it. You, you, no, no. What were you doing? Were you listening to another hunting podcast again? I swear, I give the staff in this office the freedom to do whatever they want to do as long as they meet a deadline. That is the first bullet underneath your job description. Pays attention to detail and deadline. And deadline. Are you even listening to me right now? Hey guys, it's Charles from the Whitetail Distraction Podcast. And Austin. We are proud to announce our first sponsor, Williams Archery Pro Shop and Indoor Range. Our podcast, as you all may know, is focused on local hunting and heritage right here in Western PA. And where better to start for a sponsorship than your local bow shop? They've been in business for 29 years and they strung the first bow I ever shot. It's a family-owned bow dealership who offers Hoyt, PSE, Bear, Parker, and more. They also have all accessories and arrows you may need. They specialize in bow tuning and hands-on shooting lessons, and it's truly a family environment. Head down to Edinburgh, PA to see Ron and Linda Williams, where practice makes perfect. Give them a call at 724-667-9660, and make sure you tell them that you heard about Williams on the Whitetail Distraction Podcast, and they will take care of you. Welcome to episode 6 of the Whitetail Distraction Podcast. My name's Austin and joining me today in the studio and always, Charles Hedlund. How are you doing today, buddy? I am doing great. What's going on, my man? Oh, you know, man. Just just thinking about whitetail hunting. It's it's always on my mind. I just, I can't get it out. It's like, it's like a splinter. It's just, it, it's just in there and it won't come out. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. I understand it 100%. It's one thing that when I have anything going on, I'm constantly listening to podcasts and I'm constantly, you know, watching whitetail hunting. And it's just something that this time of year, the weather's starting to change. It's cooling off at night. I cannot get enough of it. I mean, I'm out there trying. I'm not getting my work done because I'm out there in the woods scouting. I'm out there prepping stands. You know, I'm doing everything that I have never had the chance to do before because this is usually time of year where I'm grinding at work. You know, unfortunately, I have a kind of an opportunity right now to get things done and I'm taking full advantage and I love it. I can't blame you, man. You know, 
I'm I'm honestly jealous. I'm sitting at work and I know <laughs> I know you're out there prepping stands and, and doing scouting and some pieces that you wanted to look at and I can just think of a couple pieces that I want to look at and I'm just so limited on time right now. I'm just I'm I'm very jealous. Yeah, I, I guess the good thing is though that you know whenever you're available, we can match up our schedules. We don't have to fight schedules. It's like, hey man, you're available. Let's go right now. We're gonna go do something. We're gonna go scout a new piece. We're gonna you know maybe hang a stand or a camera on a spot that we're not sure about. Just kind of gaining information or just shooting your bow. You know, right now, usually it, it was tough before when I was driving an hour to and from work, I'd get home it, and I'd be drained. I wouldn't even want to get out in the yard sometimes or didn't have the time to get out there and shoot my bow. So getting a lot of practice in this year, I'm really excited about that because I feel like if you're not shooting your bow right now, you need to get out there and shoot your bow because it's a time of year where you get, you know, maybe two full months of shooting under your belt and it's really going to solidify your shot come season because you know during the season we're out there we're grinding we're looking for deer we're looking for new sign you don't get to shoot your bow a lot during the season so you really go back on the practice that you're putting in now to make sure that when you get that one opportunity you know sometimes it takes all year yeah. You're, you're sitting out there in your stand you're you're out there for maybe 40 hours throughout the season hunting and you get that one split opportunity you better be ready for it yeah absolutely and you know our guest this week which i'm really excited about having on the podcast i've been i've been trying to get him on for a little bit and he was so gracious with his time to come on and talk to us you know he's he he talks about it in in the episode about really prepping with your bow and and changing your setup and just really shooting and becoming more proficient with with your bow come that that time in the season when you have to make that shot count and you know we had a couple technical difficulties in this in this episode where internet connection wasn't the best you know so sorry about that guys yeah it was our first time on a skype call you know the first time without a guest actually here in the office or the office oh gosh the uh the rack shack here you know with us and it definitely was a stressful hour and a half before we started recording with them, but we put out what I believe is going to be, I know, is our best episode. It might be our best episode ever. It was phenomenal. You know, the guy offers so much wealth of knowledge, and you know, he probably would hate that we're saying this about him because he doesn't really, he mentions he doesn't like to be, you know, considered like one of our, us, one of his fans, but, uh, you know, this episode is absolutely amazing. Absolutely. And, You'll notice we don't say a whole lot during the episode, and it was it was kind of sitting back and just really listening. Like Charles said, he's such a wealth of knowledge, and I actually found myself listening, and it was it was like I was just listening to another podcast, and I was like, "Dude, it's your podcast. You need to talk. Like, <laughs> say something, please. Say something." But you know, it, we're just really excited about the podcast, and we hope you guys enjoy it. Yeah, we were really enjoying it, man. I I think it was a great, great episode, like I said, but we really enjoyed the time that he was on, and uh, I think we need to go ahead and uh, get him on, bring him on. Absolutely. Here's uh, Clint Campbell from the Truth From The Stand podcast. How you doing tonight, Clint? I'm doing good, fellas. How you guys doing? I appreciate you guys having me on. We appreciate you coming on and bearing with us, man. Yeah, we're doing real good. Like I said in in a little bit of an intro there, you know, you're one of the podcast that when austin got me started in the podcasting he kind of sent me your way and i've listened from episode one all the way through to your last episode with john eberhardt and you know and you you really get it done and you have a great episode or a great podcast and i'm really excited to have you on with us tonight 
Well, I, I appreciate you guys uh, listening to me jabber on about about whitetail hunting and just about anything that's going on in the uh, in in my world. So uh, I'm 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 glad I have two fellows that listen and think that it's uh, interesting at least. <laughs> yeah, you at least have two fans, so you get that to look forward to. <laughs> See that that word is always weird, man. Like I've I've never it was even whenever I was a musician, I hated the word fan like in the worst in the worst possible way. Um, it's just it's one of those things where like I don't like I'm no different than anybody else. I was that way right. whenever I was in a band. Like whenever you know when we get done playing shows, I'd go hang out you know at the merch table and like hang out with the crowd and stuff like that. I really didn't wasn't a fan of being backstage and. Um, cause it was just like, we were all kind of in it together. The only difference was I happened to be on the stage for 45 minutes, you know, and it's like the same right. thing with podcasting. I feel it's like, you know, anyone who has, you know, uh, has a, a computer and a microphone can, can do it, you know, and, uh, you just got to make some phone calls and get some folks on the phone with you to talk about it. I mean, everyone does it every day. You talk about deer hunting. So just record them, you know what I mean? So, um, but I do appreciate folks out there that, that support me and um, listen listen to John and I talk about deer hunting. So it's very much appreciated. Yeah, man. Yeah. So um, I'd like to start off really kind of, I mean, you went into it a little bit that you used to be a rock star pretty much. Why don't you go into uh, how you got hunting, where you're from, everything like that? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm a, I'm a native Pennsylvania boy. Uh, I grew up in a, in a small town called Everett. If you wanted to get even smaller than that, it's a, a small town outside of Everett. It's not even a town. It's, a, it's, in, the, it's in the sticks called Graceville. It's down by the, uh, down by the Juniata River is, is where I grew up. And, uh, you know, it was super rural, you know, grew up in farmland, um, you know, just like most kids, you know, or guys growing up in, in that part of the country. It's, uh, you know, it was kind of a rite of passage to start hunting with your with your old man and your uncles and, and stuff like that. The odd thing was, is like my grandfather's, like they never really hunted. You know, my dad learned to hunt from his older brother, uh, my uncle Bobby. And uh, you know, you're from the country when you got an uncle Bobby. I think I do too. <laughs> yeah. It's not, it's not Robert, you know, it's uncle Bobby. And, uh, and then, you know, he's got a son, of course, Bobby jr. I mean, that's when you're real, real, <laughs> like when you're real thick in it. Yeah. They probably um, just call him junior. Yeah, yeah, yep. exactly. I mean, he's like six foot three and just a house of a man. But yeah, so you know, I, I learned to hunt from my dad. You know, my dad was always you know big into the outdoors, and you know, it was uh, my family for the most part has a has a military background, with the exception of me. Um, and so the outdoors and that type of lifestyle was just really you know was kind of a cornerstone of 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 my upbringing to a degree. Um, you know, so I started out like most kids, you know, small game going squirrel hunting and stuff like that with my dad, rabbit hunting. We used to do a fair amount of, this is, you know, of course in the early nineties that, you know, I started doing ring, some ring neck and pheasant hunting and stuff like that. And then of course, you know, the big, the big time was being able to go whitetail hunting with, with your dad. And I remember the first time I went out, like I, it was a super cold morning and I, I fell asleep on the ground and it was one of those things where my dad probably was like, man, I don't know if this boy's going to make much of a hunter. And, uh, <laughs> But uh, I'm glad he stuck with me and, you know, continued to take me out and stuff like that because it's, it's you know, it's weird because it was a huge part of my life growing up when I was a kid because I was just always in the woods because I didn't have really, you know, neighbors around me necessarily. Um, so you kind of had to go make your own fun. So I spent a lot, you know, I'd come home from school and I'd grab a shotgun and walk out the back door and I'd go hunt after school, you know, in the afternoons and stuff. Nothing wrong with that, and, man. Uh, no, no, not at all. You know, we had a... You know, we had 30 acres, you know, where, where I live, like that's the you know property my dad had. My grandfather had a farm who lived, you know, uh, a little ways down the river from us. Um, but he had several hundred acres, you know, and stuff like that. So it was, you know, there was always, and then, you know, my stepdad, his family had a farm and stuff like that. So there, I, I always had land to hunt and stuff like that. 
um, that was right around my house. So it was never, I was never, you know, wanting for an opportunity to go out into the, out into the timber. But, you know, like, like a lot of kids, you know, it's like my interest started kind of expanding as I got a little older. And as, you know, as I kind of mentioned, you know, earlier, it's like, I got really into music and that kind of took me in a different direction. And, you know, I ended up in Florida for a little while and, you know, was in a band and got to do some touring and make some records and had a lot of fun doing that. And it's just, that schedule is such that you really don't get time to hunt. It's one of those all consuming kind of professions where, um, you know, you're either in the studio recording, writing on the road, or you're, or you're working some weird job in between tours and stuff like that to pay your bills while you're home. So, yeah. um, that was kind of the life, that was kind of the life that I led for a good while while I was there. And so, you know, I, during that period of time, I took one trip to Alaska to hunt, um, for two weeks, which was killer. Um, so it awesome. wasn't like I really, what's that? That sounds like that'd be a great time, man. Oh yeah, it was it was amazing. It was on Prince of Wales, uh, Prince of Wales Island hunting uh, black bear and uh, black-tailed deer. Oh, that's awesome! And uh, yeah, it was a, it was a killer trip. You know, it would have been nice to go hunting more often, but you know, being in the music kind of scene, and you know, you're really kind of hanging out with the folks who are you know more artists and writers and and stuff like that, and not a lot of hunters necessarily. And I didn't know anyone with ground, and really didn't know much about hunting florida you know because i mean i knew people hunted hogs and stuff like that but really didn't know much about deer hunting down there so i just never really had an opportunity to go and my wife and i you know some years later ended up you know moving back to pennsylvania once i was kind of done doing the band stuff got tired of of uh being poor and being broke all the time so (laughs) living (laughs) the musician life yeah i was living it to the fullest man it was exactly what everyone thinks it would be um the uh so, you know, fast forward, you know, I ended up moving back here for, um, for work and be closer to family to raise our, do- raise our daughter. And, um, you know, my first year back, it's like, I just jumped right back into hunting. It was like, I picked up where I left off and it's just kind of been, been that ever since, man. You know, it's, it was, it was one of those things where you didn't really realize how much you missed it until you were gone from it. And, and then you come back and it's like, I, you know, now I don't know that I could ever move somewhere where I couldn't hunt all the time you know oh, yeah. now i'd probably have the requirement that i would move where the hunting is even better it would probably be the, be the requirement at this point but yeah that's kind of it's kind of the backstory and, and here i am you know a hunting podcast and um enjoying that and uh getting ready for the uh 2018 season and hopefully hopefully a little bit of luck that's awesome man well speaking of the 2018 season um i know you've been doing some shooting with your bow because you got a new single pin site this year right Yes, I did, man. I changed to a, a single pin. That's I. So for years, or for the last couple years, I'd been shooting the Trophy Ridge React five pin, right? And I liked that a lot. Um, just being completely transparent, I don't have a lot of patience just in general um, with things, and <laughs> and I, I I enjoy shooting my bow more than I enjoy working on it. Um, and so I. I kind of i always struggle with being able to get all my pins sighted in and i'm kind of a perfectionist about things too so it's i, I would get my 20 yard pin sighted in and i always feel real good about that and then every yardage that i would move back it's like it would just i just wouldn't feel 100 percent confident in it. i would feel like it could be tighter and my groups could be better and and so on and so forth and so um i ended up moving to the the react site because just mathematically it's if you're on at 20 and you sight yourself in at 30 and you make those micro adjustments it's like it tightens up every pin in front of it so you know the theory is or the the the, the law of it i guess it would be because it's not a theory um you know once you sight in out to 40 50 and 60 yards i mean it it tightens up every pin in front of that so i really liked that technology and then i ended up doing a western hunt last year 
and you know, I really needed to be able to reach out like a little further and I was struggling just a little bit, especially when you start to get out to that like 60 and 70 yard range when you have a five pin, five pins in that housing. Yeah. I mean, that's just a really, that's a really cluttered, like, you know, window to kind of try to concentrate through. And I was shooting well out the distance, but I thought, you know, I was like, you know what? I was like, maybe if I try switching up to a single pin, I was like, take away some of my pre-shot anxiety because, you know, people will say it's target panic, they'll call it whatever you want to call it. You know, so it's, I was having some challenges where I was wanting to get rid of the arrow as soon as I possibly could. And part of it was because I just felt like with all that clutter in my window, in my, in my vision, I just wanted to, as soon as my pin would land on the target where I, where I wanted it, you know, to, to hit, I would just release the arrow and I wasn't controlling my shot any longer. And so I was just trying ways I could start to slow my mind down and kind of take back control of my shot sequence. And so I switched to a single pin sight. And I won't say that it cured it 100, percent you know what I mean. But it was a noticeable difference as soon as I as soon as I put that sight on. So I switched to a Trophy Ridge Alpha One, which is a still a, the same React technology, only in a single pin, and it has the V um, in the sight that kind of kind of provides you a guide as you're as you're gapping, you know, to make sure you're kind of uh, the the kill zone that you're aiming for is staying within that. Whenever you're having to hover above the uh, above your target, you know, when you're gapping a distance. So yeah, so I changed that up, man, and it was like I don't know, it it made a huge difference in just my pre-shot anxiety, where I was able to float my pin a lot better because I just I felt comfortable. I didn't feel like I was checking and double checking to make sure I was on the right pin. It was just it just allowed me to kind of slow myself down and, and take control of my shot again. So it was a, it was a big help. And I did some work with Greg Litzinger too. You know, he's a good buddy of mine and a hell of an archer. And, um, you know, we shoot, we shoot together some and stuff like that. And he's a guy who's helped people out with some of those types of things. Cause he goes to a shooting coach still even. And, you know, and so he was teaching me some methodologies and stuff like that to kind of help get myself back into shape. So it was kind of a combination of all those things. I really took this year as a, as the year to kind of take my shot back. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that, man. I know. I switched to a single pin this year. Um, I went with the HHA optimizer. So I don't mm-hmm. have um, really the ability to shoot the gap like you do with that um, that that space in there. But I've really noticed that it's really helped my shooting ability a lot, too, shooting the single pin. It just like you said before, getting rid of that clutter is huge. Yeah, yes. I know John. I actually, John just switched over to a single pin too, and he's shooting. I believe he's shooting the same HHA you are, if I'm not mistaken. I know it's an HHA, but uh, I'm not sure exactly which one it is. But yeah, he just switched over. He switched over too, and it was kind of the same thing. It was just, you know, it's. Um, I think he was more curious than anything if he was if if changing to a single pin was going to kind of clean up his window and if it would just kind of help his help his shot. And I don't think John was struggling with a shot necessarily, and I don't want to speak for him, but. Um, you know, we've talked about it a little bit since, and he's, he's really liking the, uh, he's really liking the single pin. So there's, it's a little, there's a little getting used to, you know, I think you have a little bit of trepidation where, you know, you have to get comfortable with gapping, you know, because either that or you have to turn the dial, you know what I mean? Whenever you have something, something approaching and it's, you know, that dial turning the dial, that might be those last couple seconds that you lose that you might need to get a shot off, you know? So for me, it's like, I just set my pin at 25 yards and I practice at everything from like super close distances of like five yards at, at an angle, you know, in a stand out to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm solid out to 37 yards. I mean, I could shoot out to 40, but 37 is where, you know, when I get out to 40, I start falling off a little bit, but you know, so I can gap with a 25 yard pin out to 37 yards comfortably. So that should, that should uh, cover me in the whitetail woods. See, that's interesting because when I first started hunting, I actually used the single pin 
and I really liked it for a long time. Where I found issues in it was because we usually practice on a certain size deer target, and you know you get comfortable with how high you have to hold mm-hmm. it over its back at a certain yardage. You know, I wasn't shooting heavy poundage at the time. I was younger. And then I got to a point where when I was aiming at smaller deer at, say, 35, 40 yards, I was trying to hold the same amount above the back like on a deer target, but it just wasn't working out for me because the smaller deer has a smaller size body, and I missed a couple shots. So that's when I transitioned out of it, and I just went to two pins, you know, 25 mm-hmm. and a 40 pin. So 40 would be my max yardage, which I'm not super comfortable shooting out to that, but it increased my accuracy out to 40 at the time. So then after that, I went to a three pin. So right now I'm shooting a three pin, which is 20, 30, 40. The issue I'm finding is that gapping. So I may end up going back to the single pin as well, but I mean, I I don't know. I like it. Yeah. I mean, you definitely have to play around with it. And that was one of the things I was kind of concerned about before I, you know, when I was making the switch was just the the gapping because I was good gapping with my, my five pin. Like I could gap the 10 yards in between. It gets, it definitely gets a little hairy when you're gapping, you know, you know, for me now it's like I'm gapping like 12, I guess 12 yards ish or whatever, Mm -hmm. but you're doing that on the back end of your, you know, I guess what you call your, your velocity or the back end of your trajectory. You know what I mean? So it's a lot easier to gap 20 to 30 than it is 30 to 40. Right. You know what I mean? Because especially with the, the bows nowadays, you know, how fast they shoot, it's you're pretty flat out to 25. You know what I mean? Like for the most part with my bow, it's like when I, when I had this pin set at 20 yards, I could pretty much hold on my target where I wanted it to go at 25 yards. And I'd maybe be just a little bit low, but in, in terms of a kill shot on a on an animal, it, I wasn't going to tell the difference. Right. You know what I mean? Now spot shooting, I would. But I'm not spot shooting. I'm trying to I'm trying to, you know, put one through the lungs and you know, at at twenty five yards I can hold center mass on the lungs with a twenty yard pin and I'm gonna be money. It gets a little different when you get out past that and you're using a twenty five yard pin because now it starts to, the trajectory comes in. And so what I started where I started was was shooting just a block target. And I would actually measure. I would shoot and hold at a distance and I would measure what my fall was. At, at different distances so i would know like okay at you know whenever i'm moving 25 back to 30 i've got like a three and a half to four inch drop and when i move from 30 back to 35 i've got like an eight inch drop now you know what i mean so i started measuring you know with a tape measure what my drops were so i understood what those were and once i got that i then moved to a deer target a 3d target after that and i tried to get something that was sizable about something i would try to harvest so it was you know roughly a, the frame of a 200 pound deer and, and so on and so forth. So it's like, I kind of went that route that way. I understood what my drop was and then transitioned that to a 3d target. I mean, I don't think there's any perfect way to do it. I think you just have to do it long enough and know your bow well enough and just know what your comfort zones are and don't go outside of those. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, you got the new site. I know you're doing a lot of prepping out there in the field. Uh, I've listened to you that you've been seeing some hammer bucks, um, doing some mm-hmm. glassing, so why don't you get into maybe some of your goals for uh, the 2018 season and what some of the prepping that you've been doing and how you think that's going to affect the season coming up? Yeah, so this year is kind of interesting, man, because it's I'm going to be hunting a couple different properties, probably more so than I have in, in years past. So, so just for an example, like last year I was in Montana for the you know two weeks in September, I came back and I killed a buck here in PA the second weekend of October. 
So I was kind of done in Pennsylvania. Now I had some doe tags to burn, but I really didn't get out to try to fill those until late season. And so then I went to Ohio and had a, had a tough hunt. This year, though, I'm not going to Montana. So I'm going to, you know, in the eastern part of PA here, the season comes in the 15th of September. So I'm going to start there. And I've got a couple different properties that'll be hunting this year. So, you know, one of them, I just picked up two properties here in the eastern part of PA. One of them's just kind of swamp country. And it's, and I'm, I'm kind of embarking on some suburban hunting. These are in kind of, you know, development or developed areas that have woodlots, you know, of 20, 30, 40, 40 acres um, where you really kind of they want to manage does. And so I'm going to start doing some of that because I've never done that before. Um, so that'll be kind of an interesting thing to try this year. I have my dad's property back that I didn't hunt at all last year. And I just watched with 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 trail cameras and just to kind of watch what the deer were doing. I just finished up some food plot work on that this past weekend. And, you know, I'm a little nervous about that property because I've not I've seen one decent buck on that property so far this summer. Now, you know, the truth is, is that that property, usually the decent bucks don't show up till mid to late August, the beginning of September. And then they usually all show up by the beginning of October. And there's usually a couple hammers on there, at least last year. That's how it played out. So if that same pattern holds true, I feel like it's a hunting property, not necessarily a property. You're going to have a bunch of trail camera pictures of, of deer in velvet necessarily. But from what I could tell last year, I feel like it's going to hunt, hunt really well. So there's those. And then there's a small property here, uh, in Eastern PA that my buddy's family owns where I killed my buck last year. It's literally a three acre parcel that butts up to some public ground. So I kind of straddle the line and kind of hunt, you know, in, on and off of their property and, and, and public. And that's where I killed that buck last year. And, uh, and then I'll be headed to, headed to Ohio that I'm actually headed there this weekend to, to do some scouting, a second scouting trip, just to kind of, map some more stuff out and uh you know explore a few new areas and 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 uh and check a couple game cameras that we hung whenever i was out there this past the past spring so those are the kind of the different properties that's kind of the different thing for me so for me i guess as far as goals go for me this year is you know one of my goals is always just to kind of get better as a hunter and it doesn't really have anything to do with harvesting anything um you know, it's, I'm hunting swamp ground, which I've never hunted. I'm actually really, really excited to hunt the swamp this year. Um, my buddy, Greg Litzinger is a big time swamp hunter. So I'll be hitting him up for some, for some tips. I literally just cut this property like last week. Um, haven't even laid, uh, yeah, I haven't even put boots on it haven't touched it like nothing like, and I'm not going to get to this weekend because I'm in Ohio. So the following weekend will probably be the first opportunity I have to go out to just check it out and and take a, take a walk on it. It's about 60 some acres. So I'm really looking forward to that because I've never hunted that terrain before. Um, and so I'm always intrigued by things that I don't know. You know, I like to learn learn new things and, and have new experiences. So that'll be something that's new. So my goal there is I just want to kill a couple of does. I just want to get into deer, you know, and, and learn how they're using using the swamp and see if I can kind of read the sign and the terrain in, in, in a swamp setting because – you know, I've hunted farmland and, and hill country and mountains and stuff like that most of all my life. So it's like I kind of, you know, not an expert by any stretch of the imagination, but I have an idea of where I need to start and, you know, what I need to look for and stuff like that and, and those terrain settings and that habitat. Um, it's like I have no I have no clue about the swamp. It's like there's water. I have no clue if there's any oaks on it. Yeah. I have no clue where the food source might be, you know. So yeah. it's just all going to be kind of, a uh, you know, a learning curve and, you know, my goal, you know, in terms of harvesting anything would be, I'd love, I'm really hoping that one really nice eight point on my dad's property. He was a, he was probably a, a poper, a Pope and young eight point last year when I had him on camera. And I'm hoping, I thought I saw him on camera after gun season. So I think he made it through. And if he did, that's the, uh, that's the deer I'd really like to run into. Cause it would be, it'd be really cool to, uh, 
to do that and and probably even more so i'd like to see my dad kill a deer off of it uh with a bow because yeah i don't know that he's ever i don't think he's ever killed a deer with a bow so it'd be cool to see him do that yeah well i tell you what if you're uh interested on your way back from ohio you can stop here in northwest pa and you can visit our swamp area and you can practice all you want you know we can go together and uh scout <laughs> scout my property you could tell me all about That's- it if you'd like yeah, no, that'd be uh, – I might even take you guys up on that sometime, man. It's like I'm always looking for places in Western PA to get out to, man, because you guys got some hammers out there for sure. It's it's funny because – well, I mean it's interesting, man. I mean there, now more so than ever, it's like there's – you're finding really nice deer in PA more so than, than I ever remember when I was growing up, you know. You know, just for example, I saw that hammer deer out here. It's like people don't think of big deer when you think of eastern Pennsylvania. But I'll tell you what, man, like that deer that I saw that I glassed there just a couple weeks ago, like he was every bit as big and bigger than the deer that I shot in, in Ohio. And that was you know, a great buck, for, too. You know, yeah, and I mean, that deer I saw, you know, out here you know, glassing the other week, he was probably in the mid-130s. He was a nice deer. You know, for Pennsylvania, That's just a, a hammer great, deer. That's a great, great you know Pennsylvania I mean? buck, absolutely. I'd take one of yeah, them every it, year until the day I died, and I'd be happy with it. If I saw one of those every year, I would never shoot anything bigger. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> the first one of those I saw would, you know, would get some carbon. You know what I mean? So. Oh yeah, um, it its way. But uh, you know, it's but I've seen like I've had guys share some trail camera pictures with me around here. I, I shoot at this archery club sometimes, and we get get to talking, and everyone's got their pictures on their phones and talking about deer. And this one guy, I mean, there's he's showing me this one deer. He's probably mid one fifties, double double drop tine living in like the suburbs and you know he's like five and a half years old and just never gets hunted and lives probably behind someone's rose garden somewhere (laughs) oh man yeah we definitely see that like towards the pittsburgh area uh we get a lot of pictures that come in from that area that are just unbelievable deer that are on properties that you just cannot hunt you know they're too small they're they're maybe 10 acres behind 14 houses and there's no way of getting in them you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's a lot of what happens out here. So that buck that I saw, it's I actually, you know, you were mentioning that you'd, you'd listen to the the John Eberhardt podcast that I, that I did with him. And, you know, he talks a little about his approach to getting access on 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 private ground, you know, or, or uh, private permission ground. And uh, he, he literally makes a, a hunting resume, you know, where he makes it like it's a job interview or like it's a job. And he pulls together a resume to make sure people know that it's serious. So. I took a page out of the Eberhardt playbook and I made myself a hunting resume with my, um, you know, my my credentials, if you will, <laughs> as limited <laughs> as they are. And uh, I'm just going to go knock on some doors because there's a couple of wood lots around there that I think he can get that I think I can hunt that deer in. And I'm just going to go knock on some doors and try to present myself professionally and well and uh, let them know I'm a serious hunter that's going to respect their property and here's some paperwork and feel free to give me a call and ask any questions and hopefully I'll get permission. Yeah, I think that's awesome because we touched on a couple of our other episodes about asking permission and getting permission. And when I heard him talking about making a resume for hunting, I thought that was a very unique, uh, different way of doing it. You know, how many people around here get people to knock on their doors and they come up and they ask them for hunting? They say no, they walk away. You know, it would be totally yep. different if you had something where you could give it to them and then they sit down and read it and be like, well, this guy is genuinely a really good person. You know, he's done something different that no one else has done. He's taken the time out to make this resume up, and I think that's really cool. And I think that's definitely an approach that might help people. So I bet you do good with yeah. it. And again, in, even if you get the t- same 10% that he said he gets in certain areas, you know, that's still 10% of properties that you wouldn't have if you didn't do it. Yep. 
So, but I mean exactly. that that's a good transition too because you know we were wondering how exactly podcasting has maybe changed the way you hunt or made you a better hunter. So why don't you go ahead and get into more or less how starting the podcast, talking to some of the cooler guests that you've talked to has really helped you along the way and maybe got to make you a better hunter or little tips like that one that you just mentioned that might go ahead and make you, you know, that much better or that more, more successful. Yeah. So, I mean, so podcasting, the way it started was, as I'd mentioned, you know, in the, in the upfront, I'd moved back to PA and I was hunting and I was just ate up with it. But, you know, as you can imagine living, you know, near Philadelphia in the suburbs, um, you know, I, I don't live too far from the country in Bucks County. There's some farms nearby and stuff like that. So I'm not in like the city proper, but you know, I work in the city proper. So I train in every day and, you know, and work at a, at an ad agency. And so I'm in center city every day. And so, you know, as you can imagine, there's not a lot of hunters that are hanging out in, in center city necessarily. Yeah. Um, and so, so most of my day is spent around people who, you know, don't, don't hunt at all. And folks, you know, that don't know that only that hunting exists to a degree, right? It's like, that's something that other people do in the country. You know what I mean? That's kind of like what their pers- perspective is sometimes. So I started it really out of a, a desire to try to meet people who were into the same things I was into. That was really kind of the, the goal. I was like the same stuff that I'm into and into archery hunting and just ate up with it. Like that would be cool just to create some friendships and meet some people. And I was like, you know, the pie in the sky idea was like, maybe I meet some, you know, guys that live somewhere else. And, you know, then at least I have, you know, a contact to help direct me to, you know, an area to check out if I want to go hunt somewhere else. Like, you know, for example, like Ohio and say, yeah, you know, you might want to check out these like five pieces of public ground or whatever and not give up their spots, but just like lend a hand. And if I can help them in some way, then great. And at the same time, I was like, you know, I have a lot of questions about things and uh, I'm sure there are other people who have a lot of the same type of questions that I have, um, you know, but maybe just aren't forward enough to, ask the questions or seek, seek more information or reach out to a quote unquote expert, you know, and and ask the, ask the stupid question. Um, and so I'm just never, I'm just not afraid to, to ask those things, you know? So I thought, well, maybe I can, maybe it can benefit some other folks if I, if I do this. So that was really the idea behind starting it was just to kind of help create a network of hunters that that way I could have like a, a network of folks that I've related to. And then also, you know, could kind of help facilitate, you know, learning new things to help me go have new experiences in hunting. And then also to help whomever wanted to listen and tune in, you know, if they could, you know, learn through some of my mistakes and stuff like that. So I guess as far as like some of the stuff that I learned, how I couldn't have imagined like how much it has helped me in, in, in a bunch of different ways. I think it's made me a better person. One, I think in podcasting, you have to, you, you become a better listener, you know, to people, um, you know, especially whenever, you know, doing what you guys are doing right now, it's like you guys are kind of driving the conversation and the interview and you have to kind of intently listen to people and not just hear people, um, but listen to what they're saying. Um, and I think that that's a skill that's often lost just in life in general is that we hear people and we don't listen to the words they're saying. So I think it's helped me do that, which in turn has just made me, I think, a more well-rounded, better person and a more receptive and more, you know, re- uh, receptive to other people's perspectives. Um, as far as hunting specifically, I mean, geez, I could, I could have filled a thimble full of what I know and deer knowledge prior to it. I could maybe fill a thimble and a half now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, no, it's, you know, I've had, uh, I've had a, you know, a a cool opportunity to talk to some, some guys who I hold in some pretty high regard, 
um, as far as hunters and just people in general, just good, good people. Um, mentioning John, you know, Eberhardt, it was, you know, one of the more recent ones. The dude's just a nice dude, man. And he will help literally anybody who asks him for his help, you know? So it's like, I count myself lucky where he's, you know, we were talking after we got done recording and stuff. He was like, Hey, you have any questions about anything? Just give me a call, you know, or shoot me a text or shoot me an email. You know, if you're seeing something, you're not quite sure what it is, you know, let me know, you know? And so I'm getting into saddle hunting and he was like, if you have any questions, give me a call. I'll help you out. And we'll get you straightened out before the start of the season. You know, so it's just little things like that. And then not to mention just like, you know, picking up the resume thing from him, you know what I mean? Of, of trying to gain access. Cause I am, you know, people think I'm an extrovert cause I have this podcast and I, I talk for a living in, in the business that I work in for the most part. And so they think I'm an extrovert, but I'm really kind of an introvert. So I don't meet people terribly easily. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so walking up to a stranger's door and knocking on the door saying like, Hey, <clears throat> I'd like to hunt your property is like completely outside of my character <laughs> to do that, you know? <laughs> so it, it picking up that little tip from him kind of changes, changes it for me because I can walk up and just kind of knock on the door and say my name and say what I'm looking to do and, and saying, I understand, I don't want to bother you and take up a bunch of your time, but I have this hunting resume and this, this paperwork here. If you just do me a favor and take a look at it, you know, and if you're interested in allowing me to hunt here, give me permission, my contact information is on there, you know, please feel free to give me a call or give me a call and ask me any questions that you might have, you know, it makes it really easy for me to have a real quick conversation. I don't feel like I'm bothering the person and I can get out of there really quickly. You yeah. Know, and you know, it also uh, makes for a good conversation piece too. You know, when yeah, you're at yeah, the door. Yeah, for sure. You know, and then there's then there's the more, you know, tactical things that I've that I've kind of learned, you know, and, and again, I'll use John as an example, just like some of the stuff that we talked about in terms of how he uses rut staging and stuff like that to to, to get on buck. Something I'd never really thought of, um, you know, I'll hunt funnels and pinch points and stuff like that, um, but never really thought about thinking about it in terms of, you know, the time of day necessarily. And, and thinking about when, you know, does are going to kind of get up to move and, and that, that a buck will probably stage in a certain area to try to catch them when they're coming back from feeding. It's just like it's little things like that, that like dudes that have been in the timber for as many years as he's been. I mean, they've seen it. They've seen it. You know what I mean? So they've and it's and they're able to kind of relate to you in a way that makes sense. So it's like picking up stuff like that from him. Dan Enfall. I mean, that I I killed that buck in Ohio because of stuff I picked up from Dan Enfall. You know yeah. what I mean? Like that's just a, a fact. Um, you know, I looked for a lot of the sign that he had talked about. I hunted. I was hunting the leeward side of a ridge. Um, you know, off off of what I thought to be uh, buck bedding. You know what I mean? I knew there was doe bedding nearby, and I had a feeling that there was going to be buck bedding behind me. Um, and it played out like I thought it would. And the thermals that he talked about, and picking up some of the stuff that he talked about with thermals, played out exactly how um, he suggested. And I had a bulletproof set, uh, a bulletproof set, and and killed a nice deer you know oh, yeah. so it was you know that was an instance where i picked something up from him and then steve bartilla it's like hunting hunting managed property or, or farms like one of the things i picked up from him was that you know if you watch your does like does does are you know kind of determine their dominance as well and not just a doe within a group but a, but doe families will kind of determine or exert or, or i guess put forward their dominance over the property as a whole and what I mean by that is that if you have a dominant doe family, right, it's going to likely have the best food source and the best bedding that's on the property. If you're hunting, you know, a larger property, it's just use the one family farm that I hunt as an example. It's 240, 260 acres. So it was a couple of different uh, destination food families within that property. So the dominant doe family is going to take the best food and the best bedding. 
and the secondary is going to take the secondary, the tertiary is going to take the tertiary, and is that the most dominant doe group typically comes into estrus first. Why? Because they have the best food source, the best nutrition, so their body is going to cycle as it's biologically supposed to. And so where should you be setting up if you're going to hunt bucks at the beginning part of the rut when the first estrus does come in? You should be setting up on either where that doe family is going to be bedding, right, or between bedding and the food that they're going to to catch them on their bed to food on their bed to food pattern, because that should be the first group that comes in, and the duck the buck should pay a disproportionate amount of time or a disproportionate amount of their attention to that doe group early in the rut, and then if you want to have a successful rut hunt, so to speak, in that scenario. You should be hopping from doe family to doe family to doe family. As one goes in and comes out, the next one should come in. And so you should be following the pattern of where that doe family is next and so on and so forth. So it's just like little things like that that I would have never thought of that these dudes pick up on from years of being in the timber has put me in a position where I've seen the past several years have had way more sightings, way more shot opportunities and just was in more deer more often and was actually in the right stand location where I had a kill shot on just about every one of them that I'd seen if if it was something I wanted to pull my bow back on. So that – before the, the podcast, it was like throwing a dart at a dartboard sometimes. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It's like and, – and now it's like I feel like when I go out, I don't, I don't have everything figured out. But I feel like when I go out, I, ha- I put myself in a pretty good position to – to have a degree of success way more than I had in, in, in the past prior to the podcast. Yeah. That makes a whole lot of sense, man. You know, it's, it, it always amazes me just listening to podcasts in general, yours. I mean, Steve Bartilla was a wealth of knowledge, John Eberhardt, a wealth of knowledge, Dan Infault, a wealth of knowledge. I mean, all those guys, it just, it constantly, every single week blows my mind how much I learn. I find myself just sitting there like taking down notes and, I'm I'm distracted. <laughs> you <Yeah. know? laughs> yeah. yeah, honestly, I mean, those episodes of yours were absolute gold, I'll be honest. Uh, the knowledge that I sucked in from those, I've listened to them multiple times because there's just so many good, good tips and tactics that you can grab from those episodes where you're talking, like you said, to guys that have been in the woods for more years than we've been on Earth, and they've seen everything from deer behavior in multiple states multiple terrain they really know what's going on out there and if you listen to them and you can take some advice from it and you can get the job done like you said from what dan infault told you you know that's what we're kind of inspiring to do this year with our you know maybe a new approach of the way we're going to attack deer this year and kind of you know try to use what we've learned from podcasts from all over i mean the hunting beast is one of the first podcasts i listen to and there's just so much information there and i can relate it back to some of the properties that we hunt and it's just you kind of look back and you sit and you think about all the hunts that you had and you're like wow that's why this happened or wow that's why they did this and it's just Mm -hmm. amazing it's really amazing when you can use that and and put it towards what you're doing so yeah and see the cool thing is is like you know i'm sure all these guys that we that we talk to and that are you know these guys who've had a ton of success like they have all started somewhere somewhere too and that's the cool thing about each of those guys is like they'll admit like there was a point in time where it's like i didn't know what i was doing i was out trying to figure it out and i was just trying to kill deer you know what i mean it's like and you got to get a couple under your belt and then you start figuring you know figuring stuff out and so you know, for me, there's never there's they've all had a big influence. I mean, I forgot to mention a guy, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention him or two guys because they're super impactful on how I approach hunting. One is Jeff Sturgis, um, yep. super great dude, and that's another guy where it's just like such a nice guy where it's like I can 
he's given me, you know, I mean, what he does for a living is help people manage his properties. And it's like, you know, we've, we've talked and become friendly with one another and stuff like that. And so, you know, I've talked to him about some stuff I wanted to do on my property and he gave me some advice. I mean, that's what he does for a living. You know what I mean? He was kind of helping me. I was, I gave him a scenario. I was like, this is what I think the deer are doing. This is what I think I need to do. And he was like, I agree with you. I think you should do this. And I would consider planting this or this. You know, and so having people like that that, you know, are just willing to help you out because they're they're in your community is awesome. Another one's Greg Litzinger. You know, like that dude, you know, it's like, man, you'd be hard pressed to find a better hunter than that guy. <laughs> and just uh, and just a solid dude, man. I mean, you want to talk about hunting some of the toughest areas in the country and in, in New Jersey, swamp grounds and 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 hunting mountains too. Just every piece of terrain you can possibly think of. Like the dude just knows his stuff you know and it's like and he's getting more and more known in, in like the circles of like hardcore hunters and stuff like that which is very much um should be coming to him because because he's a he's a straight killer but you know it's just i pick up so much stuff from him like we'll talk about little he swore me to secrecy on a few things like he's dropped a few pieces <laughs> of knowledge on me that he's like you can't ever say any of this on a podcast <laughs> illuminati um, <laughs> yeah yeah he dropped a couple gems on me and i was like i was like damn i was like i can't <laughs> it was one of those things where i was like i can't wait to try that this year i can't wait to see that play out but it's like you know dude's like yeah but, but the thing is is that you know i feel like i take a little bit from everybody you know and not everybody's not everyone, everything everyone says that I talk to on a podcast fits like how I like to hunt. You know what I mean? So it's like I kind of take bits and pieces and kind of make make up the hunter that I that I want to be. You know what I mean? Like so, you're almost like, creating example, like your own style. Yeah, you just kind of take what, what's going to work. What's going to work for you? You know what I mean? It's like you know, for example, like again, John Eberhart. Like a lot of the stuff he talks about, how he hunts, he hunts. You know. He'll hunt transition areas, transitional cover areas over, you know, scrapes particularly is what he kind of will, will key on. Like primary scrape areas is one of his bi- is one of his big things, and he'll hunt hunt that like as as rut staging kind of right. Like that's a similar way that I like to hunt. Like that's kind of how the, the wind and stuff was, you know, in my setup that I had where I killed that deer in Ohio was a lot of listening to Dan Enfold on my setup. You know what I mean? But what I was actually hunting was hunting a, a rut staging area near a primary scrape. You know what I mean? So and I didn't talk to John prior to that and I didn't read his book prior to that, but that was really what that setup was. So it was kind of combining the two of those guys to a degree. Now, John doesn't follow any of the wind. You know what I mean? Like he doesn't hunt a wind. Like he hunts any wind he wants to hunt and doesn't worry because his scent control is insane and he can get away with it and he's proven it. I'm not that I'm not that way. It's like I fall somewhere in the middle where I'm not as concerned with the wind as Dan is, as Dan Enfold is, but I'm more concerned about it than John Eberhardt is. Yeah, so I can I'm, agree I'm, with that. Yeah, I'm a, I'm aggressive, and I'm will, I'm willing to risk it for the biscuit, so to speak. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll tell you because... what, right there. Hold on, one second. I I know a lot of listeners that will hear that, and they will get a huge kick out of that. Because let me let me tell you a very <laughs> off subject, quick, funny story. So okay. risk it for a biscuit. I was in college, and we were doing mock interviews for a local accounting firm, and. We were in there, you know, and, and the interview's going great. And they had mentioned something. It was a dumb question about risk and how, you know, how you deal with risk and that kind of stuff. And I literally start, went on a little tangent about it. And I was doing great. Then I blurted out, you know, you got to risk it for the biscuit. And I'll tell you what, <laughs> you probably not, you probably shouldn't bring that up in, a, in an interview, but. Uh, I'm very right. happy you said it because I I think that legitimizes what I've said now. <laughs> right? Yeah. Deer hunting at work 
Mark's uh, accounting job <laughs> interview, not so much, maybe. Yeah, yeah. thank God it was just um, a mock mock interview. You know, it didn't mean much, but man. Right. But, uh, but yeah, so, you know, so risking it for the biscuit, right? It's like, I, I, I'm willing to kind of go in a little harder um, and, and, and hunt riskier wins and, and maybe in a position I might get blown up a lot of times because, quite honestly, it's like I don't have – I don't have a ton of time to hunt, right? So it's right. like I have to kind of go. I can't wait for the perfect win because I'll never go hunting at that point. You know what I mean? It's like I want to hunt any time that I'm off and can get into the timber. You know, so I do try to have multiple, you know, properties that we were kind of talking about earlier, to where I'll have what I'll call like a burner property, where it's like if I just want to go hunt and try to kill a doe or whatever, that's a burner property. I'm not too concerned about busting it up or whatever. But if I know I have decent deer somewhere, it's like then I'm definitely going to be a little bit more choiceful. But at some point, I will dive in and just take a chance because, you know, I'm not I'm not going to sit around and, and, and wait necessarily. So it's like I pick up stuff like that from from, you know, from those two guys. Um, I'm trying to think some other stuff that I've that I've picked up, you know. Um, well, I think that's awesome Steve- that you bring that up a lot in your podcast and you ask your guests that you have on, you know, what they think about, you know, giving the deer the win sometimes, what their scent control is, because I know you're asking the question. It's a great question for your listeners, but I think you're also using a little bit to learn for yourself because you can never learn enough about playing the wind or scent control and just trying to beat the nose of a white-tailed deer. You can never learn enough about that. Yeah, I mean, and that's kind of the ever, you know, I guess the never-ending pursuit, right? Is trying trying to beat that. I mean, you know, I'm I'm introducing a, you know, an ozonic setup this year in my in my rig because that's something where, you know, I I just feel like because I don't because I don't have you know 75 days during archery season to hunt, you know, it's like right. I have to kind of make do with what I have. And look, I'm not complaining. I get out a lot more than a lot of guys do. It's you know, I'll, like I have two weeks this year you know, basically the last week of October and the first week of November that I'll be in Ohio and a little bit in Pennsylvania. It's kind of a 70, 30 split between the two. Um, you know, and I'll get out here just about every, every weekend. So I mean, you know, when it's all said and done and I'll get out a bunch during late season and stuff. So it's all said and done. It's like, I'll get 20 some odd days, probably maybe 30 days in the stand, you know, during hunting season, which is pretty good for a dude who works full time with a family. Oh, absolutely. But, but at the same time, you know, it's like, I'm always trying to figure out what, what are some ways that I can up my odds of, of, you know, giving myself the best opportunity to, to harvest an animal, you know, and I've just, I've hunted, I hunt some fickle places where the wind is just fickle. You know what I mean? Like last year, you know, I was hunting that deer lucky that I, that I knew where he was bed and I had him pegged. I watched him for two years. I hunted him four hunts, uh, five hunts, I think four or five hunts. I don't remember exactly what the number was. I want to say it was five. Um, a hundred, let's just say five for the sake of conversation. <laughs> yeah. Five um, sounds and, better. And, and, yeah. Well, we'll say four because I, I free, it was, I hunted him. I didn't hunt him at all. Like the first year, the second year I hunted him only in late season because he would disappear. I would only, he, he would show up in the summer and then I wouldn't see him at all. I couldn't find him on cameras anywhere. And then all of a sudden he would show up on a couple of my cameras right around, um, the end of October. Mm-hmm. Uh, beginning of November and he would be nocturnal all during rut. And then he would show back up during, you know, at last light type of showing up at, during late season. And then, and I just couldn't ever find him. And then, so the second year I've saw, I thought I figured out where he was bedding. And so I set up in this funnel where he was, you know, late season. So he was going to get back on his bed to food pattern. And I set up, you know, it was kind of a kill stand, kind of an observation sit. Like I was, I was hopeful that I would see him and get a chance to put an arrow in him, but I wasn't hundred percent sure. And, uh, 
and I, I set up for him and I'll be damned if he didn't show up. I hunted him. So I guess it was four sets because I hunted him three times that late season after Christmas and I saw him all three sets and I just couldn't ever get close enough to get a shot. Like I would move down the ridge and the next time he would come up above me and then I'd move up the ridge and he would the next time he would come below me. And it was just like every time I'd make a move, he would come out where I was the day before. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's Pennsylvania <laughs> you know, so, hunting for you. I'll tell you what. Yeah. It was a constant cat and mouse game. So I finally, I thought I had him pegged and I had him on camera finally and went back through and looked at a bunch of inventory of images. And I figured out like, so he does hang around the property early in the season for like maybe the first two weeks during daylight. And then he, during, you know, mid October, he goes nocturnal and then doesn't show back up during shooting light again until after Christmas. So, we had a cold front that blew through on that opening Saturday last year. And I was like, you know what? I was like, I'm going to go ahead and going to risk it for the biscuit. I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to go in early. I think I know what he's going to do. He's going to come back to this funnel again. I know it because he's going to follow the same pattern as he did during late season. And I'm going to set up for him and had a great hunt, saw a couple of deer. And then all of a sudden he came in with a group of bucks. Um, and that was the one thing I didn't plan on. Like I didn't, I did not, in a million years think that they would still be bachelor uh, bachelored up and he was still bachelored up and he came he was at 30 yards and i could see him he was behind some brush i just couldn't get a shot small spike came up underneath my stand below me and was just standing there and i had the wind like my wind was good for the deer i was hunting for lucky but that deer that came up from behind me he was on what i would call the risky side of the wind mm-hmm. <laughs> and in the wind i was hunting the side of this uh the side of this ridge that kind of runs up into this this uh a food plot or whatever and it was a deep kind of a, a deep hollow you know and uh the wind's always kind of fickle in there it'll it'll kind of switch around a lot of that you know i have a podcast coming out with dan Enfall where we talk about what the wind does in farm country and why you know with like the different open areas and how it kind of creates a vacuum and why wind will swirl in certain spots and stuff like that and so you know that's what happened to this area it's like i would have a pretty steady wind most of the time and all of a sudden out of nowhere it would just switch um, oh, and then it would switch for maybe two or three minutes and then it would go back to being the prevailing wind again. So and that was essentially what happened. That little deer below me caught a whiff of something. He didn't blow out. He just started walking real, real slow backwards and went down the ridge. And then the deer I was hunting followed him. And I never got a shot. So I hunted him four times and saw him four times in a row. And he just kept eluding me. And that last time was the wind. But if I was, you know, you know, if I had a little bit better of a scent kind of regimen or had, you know, was using an ozonics unit and was at that point probably would have bought me the five feet that I needed, you know, to keep that deer below me calm just long enough for that, you know, for lucky to go, all right, it's okay to keep moving and then move out and give me a shot. Yeah. <clears throat> You're going to have to let me know how that ozonics works for you. I've been really curious about it for quite some time, but I just don't want to pull the trigger on it. Cause I don't really know a whole lot of people that use them. I hear some ads and things like that. And I hear every once in a while, like the Drury's use them and things like. That. Actually, I think mm-hmm. they switch to Scent Crusher now. That whole debacle. Yeah. But uh, yeah, you'll have to let me know how yeah. that works. I'm I'm very curious. Well, it wasn't. Yeah. So it wasn't legal sorry, in PA until what last, last year. year? Yeah, last year. So that's probably why yeah, we November don't know. Last year. Yeah, that's why we don't know a lot of people in this area that have ever used them. Obviously, because they weren't legal. But I think that would be a really cool idea because we go a little bit in our scent control but i know we're missing a little bit here or there where the ozonics might mm-hmm. be that little bit that puts you over the edge like you said you're somewhere in the middle yeah i mean i'm pretty neurotic about it like all my clothes stay in like a scent free tote and you know i i treat them with ozone you know i've been treating my truck when i drive somewhere with ozone i treat my clothes with ozone before i hunt like i've been doing that for a couple of years um i dress naked on the back of my truck you know what i mean like in, the, <laughs> in 20 degree weather 
you know what I mean? So nothing ever touches the inside of my truck and stuff like that. So it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm as scent free as I can possibly be without, you know, um, you know, going full Eberhardt on it necessarily. Right. You know, so for me, it's just, you know, I've, once I started using ozone to treat my clothes and stuff like that, I, I was able to tell a difference that I was not getting winded nearly as often. Now it's also a combination. I was starting to get better at playing the wind as well. So I won't say that it's a hundred percent, you know, the reason why, but you know, it was, uh, I was, I was getting away with more shall, shall we say, right. You know, and I guess I just, I guess I just leave it at that. And I mean, the guys that Ozonics too won't, you know, they'll never tell anybody that's a hundred percent bulletproof. Like you still have to be mindful of the wind to a degree and it's not going to completely remove you from the, from the hunting scenario. You know, it's, it's not going to do that. I mean, if you're hunting a completely down, downwind and, and you, you ran a marathon to get into your stand and you're sweating like a beast. Like, I'm just not sure it's going to help you that, you know, <laughs> you know it's not going to help, help you to, to that degree. But if you follow a scent regimen and all those things and you kind of take all the precautions and you add that as like your, your, your icing on the top, it's like, yeah, it can, it can buy you the, you know, the five, 10 feet that you might need when something gets downwind to you or a couple of does get downwind, downwind and there's a buck out in front of you. And that, you know, that as long as it make as long as the does not blowing, you're going to get your shot opportunity, you yeah. know, so it's, it can help you in those types of scenarios. <clears throat> now you mentioned something really interesting earlier and it, it's kind of become a craze lately and I've done a lot of research on it and I've heard a few people who have been talking about it, but I haven't necessarily made the jump myself. And I know that Charles is very interested in it, but you mentioned that you were going to get into saddle hunting this year. Yeah. What? So go ahead. Just basically what was, what would be like, what really made you decide to switch and go for a saddle rather than maybe like a running gun set, like a low wolf stand of sticks? Right. So I would say this year I'm probably going to use a little bit of both, mm-hmm. um, to, to, to be honest. Um, just, just because I have some setups that are kind of just set for a, a tree stand. Right. And, um, you know, maybe the, maybe I'll prehang something, you know, like on my dad's property, if I'm going to go in and I'm going to hunt it for, it's not a huge property. It's like 60 acres. And I really, only, I really have like three, what I would say three really good stands. And I'm probably going to hunt it that week and at the end of October, probably only going to hunt it like, like four days, you know? And so and I feel like those are the best three spots to kind of, to kind of be in. So I'll probably hang a set in one of them. And then, you know, the other two I'll use, use a saddle, you know, to jump between, in between them, just depending on what, you know, where I'm going to hunt that day or whatever. Um, but what really made me want to change, you know, and, and I anticipate is, you know, I'm, I, the verdict's still out of whether I'm going to be any good at saddle hunting. First off, we'll, we'll see if I'm coordinated enough to pull it off. <laughs> um, so we'll, we'll, we'll use that disclaimer, but, you know, I could envision myself as long as it goes well, that it would be something I'll change to permanently you know we'll, we'll see how it how it all plays out this year this is really kind of my test year to see how how it works but you know for me last year's hunt that i did in southern ohio was was a big wood setting the terrain was brutal it's kind of where you know kentucky ohio and um west virginia all kind of meet so the the terrain is very west virginia like in terms of like the mountains and and the and the ridges and just how how sheer some of the areas are and stuff like that and that, and it was just ridiculously thick, clear cut, like hard to navigate and just hard to hike. It was really that hunt where I was like, you know, I got to figure out a lighter way to, to start hunting like some of these areas that I want to get into, because as we all kind of know, you know, it's like when you're hunting public land, especially it's like, you've got to kind of break that half mile circle of entry points that everyone else is going to kind of go to. Right. So it's like you go from the parking lot or anywhere anyone can park and access with relative ease 
they're going to go probably no further than a half mile from that point from that point of entry and so you have to be so that means you have to be able to basically hike you know a mile in and that's kind of like the starting point or three quarters of a mile in and beyond right because you need to get into that circle where you're using you know the other other hunters pressure to your to your benefit uh, pushing the deer kind of all in toward you you know so in thinking about that and hunting those type of tough terrains i was like you know after i put my stand on my back and i put my pack on and i put my camera in in my bag and like all my gear and like you know hike in with not much clothing on and just kind of put my clothes on my pack you know and, and carry all my you know my my, my bibs and my jacket and stuff in and, and all that good stuff. It's like when it's all said and done, it's like 35 pounds. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's a lot of weight to be hoofing around in that type of terrain. And so I'm just looking for ways to reduce the weight. And so I started kind of hearing more and more about it. I knew John hunted that way because I'd, I'd listened to him talk about it a couple of different times. And uh, it kind of piqued my piqued my interest. And I'd, I'd heard of it in years past. My buddy Chad, you know, from Exodus, he – he has hunted a saddle, you know, back in, back in the day. And, 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 uh, one of our mutual friends was hunting in one two years ago. And that's, so that's when it kind of started thinking about it. And then I just wasn't real familiar with them and I wasn't real familiar with like the, the materials it was made out of. And the ones I did look at, look at, they looked like they'd be a little bit like cumbersome, maybe not comfortable or whatever. You know what I mean? So I was just, it didn't trip my trigger. And then I met this uh, fella, his name's uh, Greg Godfrey and he's one of the owners at Tethered. And I saw like some of the stuff they were getting ready to come out with with their mana saddle and stuff like that. And so it was mesh. It looked really lightweight. It looked really comfortable. They had really it was really born on the saddlehunter.com of like from a bunch of DIY guys building saddles for their own hunting purposes and stuff like that. And so I was like, well, here's a bunch of dudes that had to use basically their own ingenuity to try to figure out better ways to hunt. And now they're going to kind of take all of that and bring it to the public. And so I ended up connecting with him and we talked about it. And I started watching videos and then from there. You know, it just kind of it just kind of made sense. I was like, man, I can cut probably 10 pounds off my pack just by just with if I start with just using the saddle, yep. 10 pounds immediately, you know, and I was like, that's a huge, huge difference for me. Um, not to mention, you know, the benefits of just being able to kind of, you know, be able to take all your shots around the tree and stuff like that. I mean, you're still going to give up some spots where you're not going to have shooting lanes and stuff like that, uh, depending on your setup. But um, you know, you can shoot 360 degrees around the tree, you know, we'll, it will be remain, it remains to be seen whether or not I'll be successful at doing that or not. But those who know how to use them can, <laughs> I guess we'll say it that way. Yeah. Um, so it's just, you know, it's the, it's the diff, it's the increased shot opportunities, you know, the potential for increased shot opportunities, it's the decreasing weight. And then also the safety component of it, you know, how many of us climb into a stand and don't clip in until we're on the platform, you know what I mean? It's like, I mean, I know me, the only time I'll wear alignments belt is when I'm actually hanging the stand. When I'm climbing into the stand, if it's already pre-hung, it's like I just climb up in it and tether in whenever I get up to the – when I get on my platform. But most of the falls happen on that transition, either climbing up or down, and that transition to and from sticks to platform. You know, So it's just – it's silly to not be strapped to the tree. So for me, it was a safety thing too where it's like I'll constantly be tethered to the tree, which just adds a layer of, of safety and make sure that I get to come home every night. Yeah, and that makes so much sense. We constantly preach on here, just wear your safety harness. And it, it really amazes me every year how many people end up falling out of their tree stand and getting hurt. And, you know, they might break their back and they might be out for a season or they might be out for the rest of their life. They might not be able to hunt anymore, period. 
or yeah. worse. I mean, we've seen worse happen as well, but uh, we yep. definitely do try to preach safety and hunting safety. And I think anything that can get you lighter and safer up in the tree, like you're saying, it definitely is a huge benefit. That's why personally, I think I might look into them a little more. The thing is, I, I want to try to find a place that's somewhere where I can try one on, see how it fits me. You know, I'm a stockier guy. I'm not built real slender, especially around the waist or the hips. So I'm kind of worried about that a little bit. So that's why I kind of want to get mm-hmm. into one. Did you get into one before you kind of made the decision to go with it? And then uh, also, are you going to use a platform when you're up there for extra comfort? Do you think that'll help? Yes. Yeah. So the theme of, of, of this podcast for me is risk it for the biscuit. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I love it. it. I love it. I, I didn't, I didn't, it, it was just, I, I looked at the dimensions and stuff like that. And, uh, I read some, some comments on saddlehunter.com and just kind of got an idea of some guys who were talking about what size they were going with and, and, and they were talking about, you know, their build and what size they are and stuff like that. Um, I'm one of those guys. A lot of the times, it's it, they're too big rather than too small for me because I'm I'm like five eight, a buck fifty five. You know what I mean? So it's you know it's usually always a medium for me in almost anything. So I just went with that. And uh, yes, I will be using the Predator platform. So it's okay. just for me, you know, and talking to Greg and and, and he kind of suggested this was a good move. He was like the hardest part of the part of the you know transition period for folks who are moving from a stand to a saddle. In his you know experience, is is that you're changing completely how you hunt and you're, you're basically removing any familiarity that you have in with being in a tree. So, you know, for me, the, what I was kind of thinking about was if I can just keep one thing that feels somewhat familiar to me, then that might help make the transition. So I was like, I'm going to go with a platform instead of a ring of steps, because at least I have something that I can stand on that feels like a tree stand. It mm-hmm. feels like what I'm used to. Um, and then, you know, he kind of explained to me that he actually prefers the platform over sticks because he just feels like he can, he feels like he can get more, more get to his shots more comfortably from from the platform than he can ring of steps. He's hunted both, and he just prefers the ring of steps. He feels like it's a little bit more comfortable, and he agreed that for someone who's just starting out, it's a much better way to kind of make your transition, make your transition into saddle hunting from a stand. Yeah, it's definitely something you're more familiar with, and uh, you know, I think saddle hunting. I think that's one thing that I've gotten just from the two great episodes that you guys uh, have posted that you posted with. Uh, John and then with tethered and Mm -hmm. I think uh, another thing that I actually got from your podcast that's influenced me this year in this hunting season going into this hunting season is bringing new hunters into the outdoors Mm -hmm. because I know you had some really good episodes with your buddy that you worked with uh, about bringing him in going on his first turkey hunt and I know I have two friends of mine right now that I'm trying to get into bow hunting you know we're shooting outside we're scouting together we're putting up some stands we're trying to get, you know, I'm trying to get a couple guys their first deer. So I think maybe mm-hmm. if you can go into that a little bit, because we've always asked our guests what, you know, a good tip would be for a new hunter. And I think you're one person that has introduced someone to hunting. And I know you deal a lot with new hunters. So maybe if you can come up with a tip for new hunters or even talk a little bit about getting your buddy into hunting. Yeah. So, I mean, well, first, I, yeah, it's, um, you know, it's something that, uh, I, I just recently started, started doing, you know, it's, it's, um, uh, I, I think and this might just be a product of as, as you get a little older, you start looking, you start looking for ways to help, help other people. Like you've had all these experiences and stuff and it becomes less important that you find success and more important that you ensure that others are having the same type of experiences that, that you've had. 
um, I think is one of the things. And so for me, you know, I, I was talking to Lindsay and, and some of the guys at QDMA and, uh, you know, I had had some of them on the podcast in, uh, you know, the previous year, I guess it was. And then I ran into them at ATA and we were just kind of talking about, you know, what their mission and what their goals were for the year. And we just kind of had a nice kind of hangout. And, uh, you know, I wrote an article for them, um, you know, cause I knew that hunting recruitment and, uh, using, you know, venison and, or, you know, food as a way to kind of open up opportunities for communication with non hunters. So I wrote an article for the quality of whitetails magazine, which is the QDMA's membership magazine and a shameless plug for them. If you're not, if you're a deer hunter and you're not a member, you need to be a member. Um, they do a bunch of really, they need to do a bunch of really great stuff for, uh, for, you know, habitat and, and hunters and, uh, across the country in terms of deer hunting. Um, but anyway, so I wrote an article for them that they, that they published, which was super cool. And it was basically about how I had, you know, these two folks that lived that were essentially neighbors that weren't hunters. And I shared some venison with them and had them over dinner to cook and, you know, went through this process of kind of explaining to them how and why I hunt at the bus stop. Cause it was actually, they were the parents of one of the kids that was at the bus stop with my daughter. And so over time we kept having these conversations about hunting and they weren't really into it. And they kind of started becoming a little bit more receptive because they understood it was an important part of my life. And it was just it wasn't just like Elmer Fudd going into the woods and killing something. There was a strategy behind it and there was also a deeper meaning, you know, for me that was behind it. And eventually they came over to the house and they ate uh, venison and they walked away with going, they can respect hunting now and they're not going to become hunters ever, but they at least understand it now and they're okay with it. Um, so that was that part of it, right? And so I started kind of thinking, like, you know, I take my daughter hunting and I just had this thing where I was like, I just want to do more. Like, I feel like I'm not doing enough. You know, it's like in one of those things that like I just challenge everyone to kind of look in the mirror and it just, it doesn't matter if it's hunting or whatever it is. If there's something that you're passionate about, like look at yourself in the mirror and ask yourself if you're doing as much as you can to help support that thing that you're passionate about and answer yourself honestly. And so I did that and in mine was hunting. Am I doing as much as I can to help hunting to make it better to make sure that it sticks around for future generations, um, to have some type of impact maybe on someone else and have these similar experiences that I've had and the great fortunes that I've had in, in, in the outdoors. And the answer was honestly, no, like I wasn't doing everything I could do. And it wasn't like I had to give a bunch of money or anything like that. It's like, it's just within your means. And so, you know, my answer was no, I'm not doing as much as I can. I can try to introduce an adult to hunting because I take my daughter hunting, but that's a short-term strategy for a long-term problem. You know, we're losing hunters by the millions and kids. Sure. We can introduce them, but they can't make an impact right now. Right. They still need someone to take, buy them a license, take them in the car to, to somewhere to hunt, buy them a gun, like do all these things for them because they can't do them themselves. But if you introduce an adult, they can immediately become a productive, a productive kind of citizen in the hunting community immediately. So I had a buddy at work that I introduced to hunting just through like my experiences and he became really interested in like the Western hunting that I was doing and stuff like that. And I started sharing, you know, venison with him and goose whenever I get geese and, you know, and, and just sharing game meat with him in general. And we would talk about hunting and he would want to know the strategy behind it and what did I see and how did I react and what did the animal do? And he was just super into it and turkey season rolled around and he was like, you know, he asked me if I'd ever eaten wild turkey. And I said, well, of course, like, you know, I grew up in the country. I've eaten most wild game. Um, and he's like, well, you eat it if you get one. I said, yeah. And he's like, man, he's like, I'd really like to try some. Would you share some with me if you get a turkey this year? And I said, well, first I was like, I'm a pretty shitty turkey hunter, so I wouldn't count on getting any turkey. But if I get one, <laughs> if I get one, I'll certainly share some with you. 
And so then I thought about it for a second, and he's like, oh, that'd be great. And so I thought about it for a second. He's like, because I've only ever had store-bought turkey. I've never had wild turkey. And I said, you know what? I was like, why don't I just take you hunting and you kill your own this year? And he just kind of looked at me like, are you kidding me? (laughs) And I was like, yeah. I was like, dude, why not? I was like, what's stopping you? You know, I was like, let's get you your hunting license. Let's get your, 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 uh, your hunter safety course taken. You know, I'll take you shooting. You know, my buddy Wilson and I will take you shooting and we'll kind of go through like, you know, the gun safety and stuff like that. He shot for years, like skeet shooting and stuff like that. So he's, he was pretty handy with a gun and he was like, I'd love to do that. You know? And so here's a dude that no one in his family hunts. He never was going to have an opportunity to hunt because hunting is one of those things where someone has to kind of like, at least kind of give you that shove, you know what I mean? And like, show you, show you something. It's just, it's not, you know, we're so far removed from our primitive ancestors that it's not innate any longer. You know what I mean? In, in, in my opinion, it's like, once you start doing it, it becomes like, it comes back. But like, just to take someone who's never hunted a day in their life and say, okay, now you're going to hunt. Like they have no clue where to start. And so that was basically what he was saying was like, you know, I would never have this opportunity, you know, to, to get involved in it. And he was like, I would love to do it. And so we took him hunting, you know, we didn't see any turkeys. We didn't kill any turkeys that day. And um, but the cool thing was, is he was super into it and he absolutely loved it. The best part of it was actually when you know, I had him on a podcast that we did a pre-podcast to talk to him about how he felt about hunting beforehand and what he was expected to kind of uh, experience. And then we had a post podcast where we talked to him about his feelings about the hunt as it has now completed and what his experience was like. And his big takeaway from the entire trip was he said that at one point we were walking through the timber and Wilson and I were walking. Uh, Wilson was walking ahead of him and I was kind of standing beside him as we were walking through the timber to the last setup. So we had three different setups that day that we hunted. And he said, it dawned on me that I'm looking at the two of you. He's like, neither of you have a gun. He was like, you've spent hours talking to me about hunting, kind of getting me ready, explaining to me what's going to happen, what the turkey will do, when the opportunity is to shoot. You know, he's like, you guys have spent hours with me shooting guns and let me use your guns to shoot, you know, bought all the ammo and stuff like that to, you know, to kind of let me shoot a turkey target so I know where I need to be aiming and stuff like that. He's like, and then you guys get up at the ridiculous hour of the day, drive me out to a place to turkey hunt, walk into a pitch black forest and sit for hours without a gun and no hope to kill anything and your hunters. He's like, and it dawned on me at that moment, he's like, that you guys did all of this for me. He was like, and it was, he's like, and that was just a really powerful moment and that I recognized that like this group, this, this group that is called hunters has a bond much stronger than just like going and killing animals. He was like, and that was the moment when I kind of realized that he was like, that it's this brotherhood that takes care of each other, that you care about the other person, that you want them to have a good experience and that you just want this thing that you hold so sacred to make sure that it continues on for future generations and that you want anyone and everyone who is willing or interested to have that experience and, and find that same love that you have for it. And that was the coolest part of it. That's so cool, man. You know, we actually had kind of a similar situation this year. Uh, the past couple of years I've taken um, a buddy of mine, Anthony, out turkey hunting several times. And, you know, we I've got him on birds a couple of times. He rolled one one time and bird just got away didn't put a great shot on it but it it happens i mean it happens with deer hunting it happens with turkey hunting you're you're gonna lose animals every once in a while but Mm -hmm. he actually um charles got him on a bird this year and he killed his first bird he killed actually pretty nice little pretty nice little bird it was it was good and Mm -hmm. uh yep you know he just he was so thankful for it and you know i really appreciate guys like you that really try and get new people out in the woods and you know just getting them started and 
you know, we really got him started archery hunting last year, and he's he's really taken off with it. He's shooting well, and you know, he's he's hanging sets and he's scouting, and it, it's really a cool thing. I really enjoy it. Yeah, I think that, yeah, and I mean, uh, also, not sorry to interrupt, but I think also what you've done, and you may not realize it, is you've also brought in maybe one new hunter, but all the people that he knows that had that same kind of unknowing look at the group of hunters you've brought in supporters now because he's mm-hmm. told the story about how great the hunt was he has this really good experience hunting and maybe he doesn't bring any new hunters in, in his family or his close friends that don't hunt but those people are now supporters of hunting you know they're going to look at 100%. hunting at a different perspective so i think 100 yeah, that's great yeah no 100 percent, man i mean that was one of the things that we talked about was just you know, the type of questions that people were asking him and if they were supportive of it and everyone, you know, and his family and his friends and stuff like that were like super stoked that he was going to try something new. And, you know, it was one of those things where his wife isn't really necessarily into game meat. And whenever I would share stuff with him, I'd, I, would, I would always kind of share it because he would ask me how to cook it, you know, and I, I am a terrible like day to day cook because I don't like to cook, um, but I like to create. You know, this like, I guess the artist side of me a little bit. Um, so I do like to make like fancy food, <laughs> if you yeah. will. You know what I mean? So, um, you know, and usually it involves like some type of game meat or whatever. And I really take, you know, pride in making like a killer dish. So it's like whenever I would give him something, he would ask how to prepare it. And I would usually share a really killer recipe with him for it. Um, and then he would make it and then his wife would eat it. And she's like, what are we eating? And he's like, oh, this is the goose that Clint gave me. And she's like, this is Goose. He killed it. He's like, yeah. And he's like, pretty good, huh? And she's like, yeah, actually, it's not bad. So it's like, it's so you're 100% right. It's like, so he has his supporters, but even more than that. So the trickle down effect is even, at least in my mind, could is potentially even bigger than that, where his home is now a hunting home. Right. It's so, so not only is his wife now not non, a non hunter or anti hunting, his kids won't be. And then there's mm-hmm. a chance that his kids' kids won't be either because they had hunting around their house. Yeah. You know what I mean? Even if they don't hunt. You know what I mean? So the trickle-down effect is like has the potential to go beyond just that house and his his friends. It, it's, it could go, you know, kind of move on with the family and the kids as they kind of move on. And that's and that's a really cool thing is to kind of see that kind of aspect or that opportunity. Yeah, I've seen it from my end as well. I know a kid that I worked with is, you know, he's more on the end of non-hunting. Um, some might call more on the end of a liberal mind or point of view, but I'll tell you what, he was always open to listening and hearing my perspective. And he went as far as wanting to taste wild game as well, you know, and I think that's a big point to what you're saying and what you're doing that you can bring in wild game to somebody and have them taste what we're doing and kind of see that, you know, maybe this is a different perspective because I know he also had a different perspective and maybe a bad perspective on hunters as well. But, you know, I think what you did and, and I can take a page out of your book there and definitely learn and improve on bringing more people from the outside in rather than just fighting with them because you're never going to do anything good from fighting with people. But, you know, um, we're, we're definitely getting, getting up there on time. I know it's getting late. You have to work tomorrow. So I, uh, I apologize for that, but we're going to take another page out of your book and we're going to ask you for once, what is your favorite hunting story? Oh man. (laughs) See what you do to people when you bring them on and you ask them, (laughs) this is what you get. I know. And I never, I never forewarn them either. I just kind of spring it on them and make them kind of tell, uh, 
tell a story. Um, so I think I'll tell the one. Actually, I'm going to tell the one from the buck I killed last year. Most people would think that I would, I would talk about either like the elk hunt because that was a killer, killer trip and killer experience, mm-hmm. or like the the nice deer I killed in Ohio. But I'm actually going to talk about you know the buck that I shot last year. Um, because it was really important, and I think that there's a, there's kind of a moral to the story or a message, if if you will, if, um, if I could be so forward. So, you know, one of the things inherently that kind of well for me inherently, I shouldn't say for everyone. Um, I'm I'm a person who's very goal oriented. You know, I kind of I, I set goals for myself, and then I, I like to watch the checklist kind of grow as I kind of knock them off, right? And a lot of times I will, you know, put pressure on myself unnecessarily, and one thing that I found, and this is just, and this is part of my own doing, this is no one put any pressure on me or anything like that. This is just kind of how, you know, one of those things of how my mind works. Um, and so in running a podcast, a hunting podcast, there was a small part of me that felt like I needed to produce because I needed to, you know, validate, you know, my podcast by being able to actually apply the things that I talk about and the things that I learned from these podcasts and stuff like that. And, 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 put bucks on the wall. Right. Right. Um, which is a ridiculous thought. And I know it is. Um, but there was that pressure that, that I would, that I would put on myself and it would, I wouldn't even think about it. Like I wouldn't even know that I was doing it until this moment happened. Um, I was hunting that deer lucky and I hunted him that opening day and blew the opportunity. Like I had mentioned, or, you know, the small deer kind of got spooky and, and, and bailed out of there and took him with him. And so I was trying to find a weekend to go back and hunt him because as I mentioned, it's like I'm a, I'm a normal working dude. I really get to hunt weekends and I'll take, you know, a nice chunk of time off, but it's usually around the rut and stuff like that. And this deer, as I'd mentioned, you couldn't hunt him during the rut. Like he wasn't going to show up. So I knew I really had like a handful of weekends to try to get after him. And like, I was looking at the weather forecast and the weather just sucked and I wasn't going to get what I needed to, to try to try to get after him or to make the three hour drive back to hunt him. So I was getting kind of mad about it, and I was putting a lot of pressure on myself to try to kill this deer because it's also the first deer that I've ever kind of watched for multiple years and had history with. And so that was kind of like an added piece of the pressure. And so the one Saturday, I didn't go back home because the weather was going to be kind of crappy back there. It was going to be warm here, but like I was like, whatever, I'm going to go out and hunt anyway. So I jumped in my truck. I was going out to my buddy's parents' place, and he was like, why don't you just come out and hunt with me this weekend? I was like, all right, cool. I'll come out and meet you. So I jumped in the truck, went to – head out to his place. I got maybe two miles down the road and realized that like, I forgot all my cameras. I didn't bring like my DSLR. I didn't bring like my handy cam. I didn't bring my, my action cam, like anything for me to take in the tree stand to film the hunt, like nothing. Right. I called my wife and I was like, is all my stuff laying in the basement by the, by the fireplace? And she's like, yeah. And I was like, damn it. And she was like, you know what? She's like, just go hunt, climb into a tree stand and just be, just enjoy being in a tree. She's like, leave all the camera shit at home and don't take any of it. And I was like, you know what? You're, you're right. I was like, I'm just going to go hunt and enjoy the hunt. And so as I was driving out there, like I started kind of having this internal dialogue where I was like, you know, why am I like I'm getting to the point to where I was starting to ruin my hunts for myself because I was so stressed out about trying to kill this one deer. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I also had the same thing happen to me whenever I was a musician. It was part of the part why I kind of left music when I did it was because I had – I had a lot of external pressure too, just from, you know, managers and attorneys and, you know, bandmates and stuff like that. And I was the main writer in the band. So it's like, I had that type of pressure and it ruined it for me because I turned something that was a passion of mine into a job that I felt immense pressure to produce. Yeah. Right. Um, so it took like kind of all the create. Yeah. So it took all the creativity out of it and stuff like that. It, it, It turned into a job. 
I was starting to get the same feeling about whenever I would go hunt. I would start to feel like the same like anxiety and stuff like that. So I was, I was driving out. I was like, you know what? I was like, you just need to stop worrying about hunting like a particular deer or what type of deer you're going to try to harvest this year or whatever. And if a deer comes by you that makes you get excited, put an arrow in it, just hunt, you know what I mean? And be done with it. So I'm talking myself down. I get out of the truck. I walk to the stand or I walk to the tree. It's the one tree that I wanted to hunt in this, in this area. It's crooked, a bunch of branches. It's going to be a pain in the pain in the rear end to try to put my stand in, but I got my stand in. It was the worst set i had ever hung in my life, like crooked <laughs> as crooked could be. And I'm like, you know what, whatever. It's only going to be like a handful of hours. Cause it was just an evening hunt. I was like, so it's only going to be a handful of hours. I can tolerate being uncomfortable for a couple hours. And, uh, so I went to start pulling all my stuff up and I was pulling my bow up and I pulled my bow up. My arrows got caught on the side of one of my, on one of the steps on my sticks and pulled out every arrow in my quiver, except for one. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't get any further up into the tree, which was fine. Cause I was only about 10, 10 feet up off the ground. And, I, and so one of my sticks, I was, I let lay at the bottom of the tree cause I didn't have anywhere to put it. I didn't realize I didn't need all the sticks. And so all my arrows are laying, at, for, except for one are laying at the bottom of my tree. One of my sticks is laying at the bottom of the tree. I'm a, I'm a sweated mess cause it was warm out and I'm just kind of sitting there going, this is quite possibly the worst hunt ever. Like, <laughs> like it, in the history of mankind, this might be like the worst hang and hunt on the face of the world, on the face of the planet. And so I'm sitting there and I'm just kind of relaxing. And I'm like decompressing. I'm just telling myself, you know what? Even if you don't see anything, it doesn't matter. Just enjoy being in the tree. You need to calm down. You need to relax a little bit. You need to stop stressing out about what you're hunting and what deer you might shoot, what deer you might not shoot. And this, you know, all these things I was getting worked up about and i saw a doe pop out and i watched her for a little while because i had some doe tags too so it was i was a, i was going to be an equal opportunity um harvester that day whatever would give me the first opportunity is what i was going to what i was going to put an arrow in and she popped out and i just never got a clean shot at her she's about 40 yards away and watched her for a little while and she meandered off and then this little buck came came out little spike he hopped out of like right to my right you know at about I don't know, at 20 yards and walked on a beeline straight to me and was standing right underneath my stand at like eight yards. And so I got my, my phone out and I was taking video of him and he hung out for like five minutes. And I just, I videoed him for all five minutes, just watching him. He came in worked a licking branch a little bit. Like, you know, he was a little guy, but he, he was trying to be a man. You know what I mean? He was oh, yeah. working a look, licking branch pawn a little bit, you know, he thought it was bad. So he walks out into like this little, you know, kind of grass area and he kind of takes off. And that was, that was about it. And I was just sitting there. I was like, you know what? If my hunt ends right now, I was like, I had a killer hunt. I was like, I saw a doe. I saw a little young buck come in at eight yards. I'm only 10 feet off the ground, remember? So it's not like I'm – no, the tree was pretty pretty bulletproof as far as like all the cover and stuff I had around me. But still, I was only 10 feet off the ground. He was at eight yards, and I sat – he had no clue that I was there. And I just sat and watched him do deer stuff, which was super cool. you know. So I was like, if it ends right now, I had a good hunt. So I'm sitting there, and it's – you know it's starting to not getting dark, but like, you know, you're at about the last like 45 minutes, last half hour of, of hunting light and stuff. And I'm sitting there just thinking to myself, I'm like, all right, this was a great hunt. Didn't get anything. Not a big deal. Then I hear this like crash and I look over to my right and out pops this eight point out of the brush, just out of nowhere. And he's got like a bunch of crap stuck in his antlers where he was like, you know, clearly like, you know, ripping up some trees and had like a bunch of brush stuck in it and stuff like that. And he comes out and he's going to take this path behind me. He's going to be at 20 yards. And I was like, 
I was on, I was trying to decide if I was going to shoot him or not because I couldn't get a good look at him at first. Like I knew he was an eight point when he jumped out, or at least I thought he was, but I wasn't hundred percent sure. And so then he turned and cut back toward me just like that little deer did and followed the same exact path. When he popped out, I saw that he was an eight point. I got super excited. He stopped at eight yards. He was working at licking branch. I didn't have to mouth bleed or anything because he had no clue in the world that I was there. And uh, I let an arrow fly, disappeared through his, his chest cavity. He mule kicked, took off, and I heard a crash in the uh, heard a crash in the timber about 40 yards away. And that was uh, that was the hunt. But what the, what was the cool thing about that hunt was was like he's not a, a quote unquote trophy deer. He's not the biggest. I have bigger deer on my wall now. You know what I mean than than him. But he is. I I did a year amount of him. I did my, I do my own year amounts and he has a prime position. Like I haven't even hung him. He sits on my bar top in my basement and I look at him almost every day and pick him up because that deer taught me. It taught me a ton that hunting is just get rid of the bullshit, man. Like we're connected to our screens all day. We're connected to our phones all day. We're connected to answering emails and just people are vying for your time every second of the day. Take that time you get to have in the timber and take it for you to make you happy, to kind of reset yourself, to kind of find your mindfulness and kind of clear your mind so you can be a better, a better husband and a better father and a better person when you come back from the, from the hunt. And that's what that deer taught me. And that's why that deer is probably the, the favorite, my most, my favorite buck that I've ever harvested. And that's the story of that buck. Yeah, man. That's the deer that centered you, you know, brought you back to reality, brought yeah. you back to where you began and why you started doing this from the beginning. And I think that's, that's absolutely phenomenal story because so many people, they would look at hunters and they wouldn't see that kind of story. They wouldn't understand what we go through or what we feel when, when we're doing this, you know, it's not just about getting out there and and killing something. There's so much more to it. So I I think that's absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. hundred percent, man. And I'll, I'll just leave you with this. Like, and I'm not too proud to, to, to say it, but like, you know, people who, who aren't hunters or whatever, and even some hunters, maybe they feel like they need to be macho or whatever. I don't, I don't know what the, the reasoning is, but you know, I would be lying to you if I said that, that I didn't feel a sense of remorse every time I harvest an animal, that there's this feeling of remorse, this heaviness that I feel that like what I did was just, it was a heavy moment. You know what I mean? Like you took a life. Um, yeah. There's no way around it. I'm not regretful that I did, but every time I do it, I get a lump in my throat, you know? And I think that that's, you know, me being able to be connected with, with the surroundings that I'm in, you know yeah. what I mean? At least that's, that's how I kind of frame it to myself, you know? And so, you know, it's, there's, we're not, you know, bloodthirsty killers by any stretch of the imagination, you know, have a deep appreciation for the, for the circle of life that, that occurs. Um, some people, you know, prefer to, to hike and, um, mountain bike and, and, and be an observer of, of nature. Um, whereas I prefer to be a participant and I wouldn't have that any other way. Yeah. It's the respect you have for an animal that, you know, we can appreciate from our end as well. You know, Clint, I, I think that that story is just a perfect way to end this podcast. And I couldn't, thank you anymore for coming on and just telling stories and giving tips and and just really telling the story of 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 how you hunted and and everything like that i mean it's just i really appreciate you taking the time to to talk to us we folk (laughs) yeah yeah and i'm 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 honest man uh you know 
if you want, take me up on that offer. I, I mean it. You know, if you ever want to come over here and scout with us, we have a huge swamp piece. You know, we hunt a bunch of different properties around our and I have a camp up in uh, the Allegheny National Forest that we could always get together sometime and, you know, even hunt together. I mean, this is, like you said, this is what we're doing this for, to meet people, to make new relationships. So if you're ever around this end and hit us up, man, we really appreciate you coming on and doing everything you've done for us. So I'd like to you know, repay it a little bit for you any way I can. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate that, man. I, I might have to take you, uh, I might have to take you up on that, but I appreciate you guys having me on. Yeah, man. Well, Clint, um, would you like to tell everybody out there where they can find you, where they can find your podcast, whether you have it on Facebook or anything like that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you can, uh, so the podcast is truth from the stand, uh, deer hunting podcast, and you can find that on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube, Spotify, iHeartRadio, anywhere you can find uh, podcasts, you'll 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 find it. Um, you can find me on Instagram. That is just uh, at uh, Truth from the Stand, and also on Facebook at the same, uh, just uh, Truth from the Stand. Um, also, if you've not been on the site, um, if you're new visiting the site, there is a pop up that will appear at truthfromthestand.com it will ask you to sign up to be part of the tribe um this will get you on the newsletter you know i send out stuff that you know i share promo codes and stuff like that for discounts on gear with some of the 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 partners that i work with but also if you sign up for that through that pop-up you will get the uh, diy out-of-state diy um hunting check uh, whitetail hunting checklist so it'll be some tips that i kind of follow when i do out of state hunts and uh um you know some things i kind of consider and then also like a checklist of gear that you might want to consider taking that way it can kind of help you pack as you're getting ready for your out-of-state hunts so that's where you can find me um hit me up on any of those platforms i'm happy to talk to anyone answer questions have dialogue make new friends and uh yeah all that good stuff yeah, awesome. man, you got an awesome site. I know I subscribe to it as well, and I uh, really en- enjoy and appreciate your uh, podcast. And I think everyone out there that listens to us, definitely go listen to his because it's a lot better than ours. So. <laughs> oh, 100%. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a, we all do our own thing, man. Yeah. No, we appreciate it, man. Honestly, uh, this was this was great. It's more than I could have imagined. So oh, yeah, I really 100%. appreciate it. I mean, you answered yeah, you... questions I didn't even have and more. But... Yeah. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, man. Uh, thank you out there, everyone that's listening. And uh, we'll wrap this one up. I appreciate it, guys. We want to give a special thanks to Clint Campbell for coming on to the podcast tonight. Uh, we were recording late at night. He came on. I know he has a lot going on in his life. And he absolutely just brought a phenomenal episode to us. So we really want to thank him for coming on and talking with us. If you're not listening to his podcast, get on there and look up Truth From The Stand podcast. Give it a listen. Go back in the episodes. Not only can you gain a lot from it, you really get to gauge how much of a genuine guy he is. Absolutely. And another special thanks to our sponsor, Williams Archery and Edinburgh, PA. Go down and see Ron and Linda Williams. Get your bow tuned. Make sure you're all ready for that shot that's going to count this season, you know. And uh, also a special thanks to all of you for listening to the podcast. You don't have to, but we really appreciate it. If you enjoyed today's episode, go ahead on and give us a a five-star review. Uh, That means a lot to our podcast since we're just getting started Every review matters a lot to us, and it really gets us sharing our podcast and expanding, which we'd like to do. You know, great episodes like this mean more to us probably than anything, and we want more people out there listening. We want our friends and family listening, but we want more than that, too. So definitely get out there. Give us a five-star review. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at the Whitetail Distraction Podcast. 
If you have any suggestions or criticisms about the podcast, feel free to send us an email at the Whitetail Distraction Podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, whether it's good or bad. Also, if you have any topics or suggestions for us, feel free to reach out on any of the platforms or feel free to send us an email, whether you want to come on the show or you know somebody who wants to come on the show or you just know somebody who kills great deer every year. It doesn't even have to be great deer. Somebody who kills deer consistently. And really, we will talk to anyone. Don't feel that you're maybe embarrassed to ask someone to come on or maybe promote yourself to come on because we'll talk to anybody. We just love talking deer hunting and that's what this is all about to us. So definitely if you have anything that you want us to talk about that we haven't covered yet, you know, hit us up on social media, hit us up on our, our email address, anywhere you can find us. Yeah, we're always looking for new ideas and new topics. So just don't be shy. Feel free to reach out. The distraction's real. The distraction's real. The distraction's real. It's real, people. It's out there. 